So this week, as we have been, the last couple weeks we've been going through the book of James and we've been talking about the walk. And this week we're confronted with faith and works and how James treats those. And it's, it's going to be a weighty it's going to be a weighty message, what, what James has to share with us. So can I, just, can I just dive in? Can I just go in this morning? All right, let's go to the scripture. James chapter 2, we're picking it up in verse 14. James begins, What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but, the, but you don't give them what the body me- needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it does not have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith by my works. You believe that God is one. Good. Even the demons believe and they shudder. Senseless person, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works in offering Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works in receiving the messengers and sending them out by a different route? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. There was a, there was a talk given last year that got a lot of attention. It was by a black pastor, and his name was Micah Edmondson. And the talk was titled, Is Black Lives Matter the New Civil Rights? In it, he was basically stating the case that no, that the two were not the same, that Black Lives Matter, it's, a, it's more of an irreligious movement, and it was rooted solely on justice, justice and what was right and wrong uh, in the way that black people were being treated. They even go so far as to say that this is not your parents' civil rights. Conversely, in contrast, um, he points out that the civil rights movement was a response by church leaders to the, injusti- the same injustices that we experience today. Uh, it was a response to those injustices, uh, and it was rooted in the belief that all people were created in God's image. And so therefore, they were deserving of, of dignity and equality. But where Micah seemed to catch everyone's attention is, is what he said afterwards. He, he said that, There has been a need as of late for movements like the Black Lives Matter movement, to which the Christian world said, but this is an irreligious movement. Why why is there a need for something like this? And the reason he said, and, and he said it with grief, was because that there's been no Christian alternative. Basically, he was it was a knock against the church. In recent years, in recent times, the church has been slow to speak. And it's been even slower to act. Uh, The result has been, I think we would argue, for the first time in modern history that the church has become virtually irrelevant on issues of injustice in our world uh, and even in this nation. And for those with a Catholic background, Pope Francis, he's trying, y'all. He's trying. But the church has been virtually irrelevant. And so the world isn't really looking to the church anymore like it was, say, in the civil rights era. 
And much of that has to do not with so much our lack of words, but with our lack of works. Our faith is not added up to our works, and so the world is noticed. This morning, James is going to confront us head-on in this, this series in the walk, and it almost seems like he's going to undercut us in how we're trying to walk, almost as if to take our feet out from under us. But I pray by God's grace that we'll be able to, to see this, to understand what James is getting at, that these words aren't too harsh, but they make sense, and that hopefully it, it'll be a challenge to us, but it will also encourage us. So he begins... In verse 14, he says, What good is it, brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but does not have works? Can such a faith save him? Now here's where it gets hard, because as Protestants, we have, for the most part, believed that we're saved by God's grace, that that you can't earn it. That what God has done is when he sent Jesus to bear our sin, and he gave us new life, that we believe that by faith, that, that it can't be earned. And so, in a sense, we can't exclude from that our response in terms of works. Works of obeying Jesus, uh, of loving God and loving others. And as we wrestle with this passage, we'll, we'll see some of the, the distinctions that James makes here. So then James uses this illustration. He uses this illustration of, of a family, of, of, a, of siblings of sorts. He, he basically says, you have a brother or a sister, and, and you picture them on the corner, and they're lacking food, uh, and they're lacking clothes, and, and basically we, we see them, and they're in need. And instead of stopping to see what they need, we just continue to walk by, almost as if with a smile. They're not smiling, we're smiling, and we give them a little benediction, and we just continue to walk on our merry way. Sounds kind of silly, wouldn't it? Like, if you have a sibling, and you just walk by them, like, how blind would you have to be to, to not see their need? And it sounds silly, and I think that's what James is pointing to. Like, what kind of faith is that? It almost doesn't seem real. It sounds more silly than it does real. Like the illustration in and of itself doesn't work unless there is hatred in your heart or you were just blind to need. How could we, if we were perfectly capable giving to a loved one in need, withhold that and instead just use words instead? James is saying, what good is that? It's silly and pointless, and yet so often that's, that's what the Christian world does. And that's why the world is taking notice. Like, we're quick to maybe tweet something or post something, but in terms of actions, our works have been lacking. And that's not what Jesus had in mind for the world, for his followers, for the people that have chosen to, to believe in him. Now, this is where works are altogether different from when we think about religion and traditional religion. More, more likely than not, if you ask a religious person how to associate or, or what they think about works in terms of religious or religious works, they tend to associate religious people as having deeds like fasting or praying, reading their Bible. And, and what's beautiful about the Christian religion is that it's certainly not less than that, but it's so much more than that. James says that true and undefiled religion, we just spoke last week about it, is to care for the widows and orphans, to visit them in their affliction, to not be corrupted by the world. 
And this is what James refers to when we talk about works. Those works being a display of our faith. James is trying to make that case that a workless faith, a faith that can't be put on display, is useless to the believer. It doesn't do any good for the world because they can't see it. And it also doesn't do any good for the believer, him or herself. He goes so far as to say that faith alone is dead if it's by itself. That faith alone is dead. Do you feel James kind of coming in and cutting you at your knees already? James gets even bolder. He would say, show me. He's making this argument that there may be some objections out there where some people say, well, well, some people have faith and then some people have works. But then James quickly responds by saying, show me your faith by, without your works. Show me your faith by, by what you haven't done. Can you show me your faith by what you do? What James is getting at is that theoretically thinking, like, we can't. I can't show you my faith if all I do is talk about it, right? I can't show you my faith if there's no display to it. There's nothing to show. All that you're left is with your confession of faith and how well you articulate your understanding of your Christian faith. Now, that's crazy for me because I, I tend to do that often. When I ask, when I meet new people, I'll ask them to tell me their story, and I'm always kind of listening out for some kind of semblance of faith, what they believe about the world, what they believe about God. And if I'm talking to Christians and I ask them to tell me their story, then I'm listening a little bit more closer to see like maybe what kind of church tradition they come from. And James is saying, what good is that? He's almost, in a sense, saying, like, your words don't really mean much. They're just words, really. Now, it may sound super self-righteous of James to kind of have that, that conversation. Show me your faith, and then I'll show you my faith. And so, in a sense, it may be a challenge, but I think what James, the point that James is making is that if your faith isn't on display with your works, does it really even matter what you claim to believe? It's of no use. A workless faith is no use to the Christian any more than a camping tent is in the middle of a Category 5 hurricane. It's useless. Church traditions, and I'm, I'm aware of New City Fellowship, it can be, this can be a funny thing when we think about church traditions because every tradition emphasizes certain things. You know, one, one tradition baptizes babies. Another baptizes believers. This, this church has multiple different pastors. This church only, only has one. We historically, uh, a part of this tradition, we believe central things about Jesus that unify all believers at all times since the birth of the church. And I think that's what unifies a lot of the different churches, right? In our particular tradition, like, we, we tend to hold up theology, and making sure that we are articulating our views about God correctly. And that, in a sense, we want to make sure that we get it right. That we're rightly dividing the word of God. And amen, that we should. But as we see here, if we let the truth of the next verse examine us, I think what we'll find is that that oftentimes is not enough. It's not enough just to make sure that we get it right. I think James would ask the question, what if it's not about having the right theology? 
James says, you believe God is one. Good. Even the demons believe. They shudder. He's pointing to this historic Jewish confession of this, of, of one God. And yet he's basically saying it doesn't matter what you confess to if there's no fruit to match. And as much as I don't want to hear it, I think he's, he's onto something. I think he's right. What's the difference between me, a seminary graduate, and a demon? We both may believe the same things about God. A demon being someone who reviles the will of God, who hates Scripture, the anti-God, the anti-Christ. But he, be- he may believe the same thing that I believe. And James is saying, you're on the same par with them if it's just a matter of confession and belief. So what does it matter if I've, written, if I've read Horton's systematic theology if the only time it ever is on display is, is with my words? On the flip side, let us consider somebody like Martin Luther King Jr. Somebody who was a prophetic voice in terms of equality and social justice. But honestly, one whom I probably wouldn't see eye to eye in all things doctrine. But in regards to works, as James describes it, his faith was on display. Now, I'm not going to excuse some of his moral failures, and I don't think that we should. But in terms of works, he had mercy for the hurting. He was a sounding board for the oppressed. And he was a prophetically, uh, he was a prophetic voice for the systemic injustices done by the majority people. He lived out true religion, and it cost him his life. Is his salvation in question because he didn't believe the same way I believed? If his doctrines weren't the same as I ascribed to? Now, if you're a, if, if you're a Protestant and, and you believe in theology and you uphold it, then this challenges us to the core. It challenges me to the core of my Western Eurocentric view of Christianity. And God is the judge, but I think as James seems to make the case that right theological belief without any display is not actual faith at all. That it doesn't matter what you claim to confess. And we ought to ask ourselves if the quest for sound theology and making sure that we get it right is actually a tool used by Satan to keep us from displaying the works of God in the world. So how then do we reconcile the two? How do we reconcile the importance that we give to faith and the importance that James places on works? How do those two, which are seemingly at odds with each other, how do they, how do we make sense of that? Are, is scripture contradictory? Are, are, are authors saying two different things? And to be specific, what we're talking about is in the New Testament, we read that James says something that opposes, that may seemingly oppose another author. Paul, the Apostle Paul, as Philip alluded to. See, James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. He cites two examples of that. Paul, however, otherwhere, uh, otherwise in the New Testament, he seems to say the exact opposite thing when he says, for we conclude 
that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. James just said the exact opposite thing. That we are justified by works and not by faith alone. Paul is saying that we are justified by faith apart from works. How does that work? And they both cite the same scripture. They both cite Genesis 15.6. That Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. So how do we begin to answer this? Because I tend to side with our reformers that it is by faith alone that we're saved. With Calvin and Luther and the rest of the gang. It can't be worked for. If not, like, what, would make Christ, what would make our Christian faith any different from any other religion if not for that? Salvation is not earned. It's gifted. That's what we believe. But here's what I've come to. I don't think that what they're saying is contradictory. I think that both James and Paul are addressing both Jewish followers of Jesus that are dealing with their own different situations. James is addressing people that have come out of the Jewish faith, that have put their faith in Jesus, and because of that, they feel like they can just sit back and wait for Jesus to come, to return back to the earth. Whereas Paul, I think what he's addressing is a bunch of followers of Jesus that have put their faith in Jesus, but when they follow him, it actually looks more like the Jewish law than it looks like following Jesus. So their points of emphasis are different because of their audience and the situations that they were speaking into. Put it like this. To bring back Black Lives Matter. You guys remember that slogan and how controversial it was, right? Amongst white folks, we said, well, don't all lives matter? How, how can you just say that black lives matter? Don't, don't all lives matter? Did it mean that black lives matter as a movement didn't care about white people? No, it couldn't be that. If you, if you look at it, that there are white people marching and moving with black lives matter. So it couldn't have been that. They weren't excluded from that. It's not that all lives didn't matter. It just meant that what the movement wanted to show, especially to the white majority culture, was that it was the same thing that they've seen for a long time. That there is injustice and that the question, the black question, it, it was approached differently. And so in a sense, what they were emphasizing was a different situation. In a way, by addressing the black question, they were alluding to the fact that, yeah, really all lives matter, but we want to let you know that black lives matter too. So whether white or black, they, weren't, they were saying the same thing, but they were just emphasizing it with a different point. It was a different point of emphasis. What James is saying in emphasizing works, it's not that works don't matter more than faith does, or that faith doesn't matter at all. It's not an equation whether faith plus works gives you salvation. Rather, I think what James is getting at, what he's alluding to, is that it's a working faith. A working faith that works to completion in the life of believers. James uses two examples from the Old Testament to prove to his Jewish audience that he has a point. First, he uses this, this example of Abraham offering his son Isaac up to God. When God tests him to give up the thing that he loves the most. And it was his works of obedience that God that put 
his faith on display before God, the faith that he had decades before when God had first spoken the promise to him. His faith was on display by his works. And then James points and turns to Rahab, the prostitute. He actually goes out of his way to say, yeah, the prostitute. To say that her faith was proven by her works, that her works were on display, that no matter where she was in her life, no matter what she had done, even being a prostitute, that she can respond to God in works of service to these Jewish, to these men of God. In both cases, both Abraham and Rahab, their works coincided with their faith. And James's argument is just this, that our works are inseparable. Our works with our faith are inseparable, that the two are inseparable. They go together. You can't have one without the other. You might say, like, faith and works go together like maybe Donald Trump and Twitter or something. But saying that you can't have faith without works, he's also getting at a faith without works is not really faith at all. So consider James's case. Look at the life of James, for instance. He's known as James the Just, according to early church historians, and he's widely believed to be the leader of the Jerusalem church. He's also believed to be the half-brother of Jesus. Like Jesus, during his earthly life, had a brother, that James was this brother. However, what other historians would point out is that during Jesus' earthly life, James wasn't following him. No faith. In fact, there's a number of scholars who suggest that when Jesus was doing these miracle campaigns, that James was numbered with his family that thought Jesus was out of his mind. So then what becomes of James and how does he become the first leader of the church in Jerusalem? What must have shifted? What must have taken place for that to happen? Paul was a non-believer at the time that Jesus appeared to him. Paul had been a non-believer during the life of Jesus. And he writes that James might have been a non-believer as well. But he also writes that both had seen the resurrected Jesus. Both Paul and James, after Jesus' death on the cross, had seen something. They had seen a resurrected Jesus. And that in the weeks following his death, they, were, they had shifted from, from non-belief to belief, from skepticism to faith. So during Jesus' life, James might have known Jesus as a teacher, but not as Lord. In Jesus' resurrection from the dead, he proved himself to James, his skeptical half-brother, that he is indeed Lord, not just over sin and death, but over everything, over the heavens and over the earth. See, I, I think what I'm getting at is what we believe about Jesus will 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 determine how we respond to him. What we believe about him will determine how we respond to him. If he's just a great teacher, then you could admire him or you can quote him, but you're not necessarily going to lay down your entire life for him. But if Jesus is Lord 
of the heavens and the earth, and he did die on behalf of humanity's sin and was raised to new life, then that indeed makes him Lord. And that we must believe, and our faith must be a display of those beliefs. That our beliefs must correspond with our faith in Jesus, if he is indeed Lord. He commands complete obedience, and he calls us to surrender our lives to his leadership. As a pastor put it, Jesus did not take on the world's sin and conquer the grave. He did not take on the cross and walk out of the tomb so that we can, thousands of years later, come together on a Sunday afternoon, Sunday morning, to to hear some songs, to sing some songs, and then to hear a message and go out and do nothing with it. That there was something more that we were supposed to do with that. That Jesus had something more in mind when he was redeeming his people. And I think we would all agree with that. One of the ways that we can tell if our faith is being displayed by our works is when we take the pulse of our faith. And this, by the way, proves James's point. There have been stretches during my time, I was either in Bible college or even in seminary, where I was learning vast amounts of, of knowledge, of, of theology. And I can honestly say during those times that it was the hardest for me in terms of matters of faith. I felt so dry. I was learning vast amounts of theology, and, and while I was excited by some of that, I could honestly say it didn't really translate to much. Not that it didn't benefit me, but it didn't really result in a display of my faith. My faith was displayed only in my thoughts, but not in my, my works, and it started to take a toll on me. My faith became like this, dry, this, this sterile, dry thing. Are you bored with Christianity? Has the Christian faith become something like this sterile, dry thing? Do you find yourself spiritually stagnant, like in the same place you were before the year started? It may be that your faith has withered because it has, not, because it has kept silent and there's not been works done out of, a, of an obedience to Jesus. That there's not been a display of works to coincide with your faith. With, which, remember, that, that's what James says is dead. James, James says faith by itself is dead. And we wonder why sometimes we feel this way. And I think it proves the point that faith by itself is dead. That if it's not coupled and if it's not joined together with works, displays of obedience done by or, or out of obedience to Jesus, then, then our faith will wither up. Our Christianity will become boring to us and we'll just go through the motions when we come and gather together on a Sunday morning. What we believe was always meant to be put on display. Our Christian faith was was something like an adventure to be lived out. It makes our faith vibrant and it makes us come alive. That what we believe, there's joy in what we believe. And so our works put flesh on what we believe. I remember one of the darkest times for me as a, as a college minister in college ministry was, 
when one of our key student leaders attempted to take her own life. And uh, I think at that time, the voice of Satan was louder in her ears than, than Jesus' own voice. And in a moment of weakness, she called one of us up and told us what she had planned on doing, what she failed to do, and, and we called the authorities, and, and she was in a mental uh, hospital of sorts for four or five days. And I remember going to the hospital on the first day and kind of praying for her. We all kind of gathered and, and prayed for her, and we just wanted to listen, wanted to listen to her, and one of the things that she said was that she needed to feel God's love. Like she needed to feel God's love. And it's almost as though if she didn't, she was going to drown in her own depression. And so we prayed. And for the next three, four days, we were there during her visiting hours. It was maybe three or four hours in the morning and then in the afternoon. And we made sure that someone could be with her during those hours. Obviously, her her parents were there, but... In that time, we made sure that somebody could be there with her as well. It was almost as though we had like a rotation of visitors, making sure that every time was accounted for. By the fourth day, I remember going and I I saw that she had made friends in this hospital. She was having conversations with people, and, and granted, she is an extrovert, but she had started making friends with people, and she was sharing Jesus with her new friends. I remember she actually had one of us bring a Bible so that she can have one of her new friends read it, and then she was going to teach them how to study the Bible for themselves, a product of university. And I remember what she said when she got out. She said, I remember how she said she needed to feel God's love, and she said that she felt God's love through the way that we loved her. She felt God's love and the way that we just took time out to spend with her. It's not to say that she doesn't still struggle, but she has community. And she feels God's love and she knows God's love because of times like like that. Just as God put his love on display by becoming flesh among us, so our works put our faith on display amongst a world that really needs God's love. And it's through our works that our faith takes on flesh. And people see Jesus through us. It's, it's almost as though people get a glimpse of Jesus through our lives and the way that we love. We could even say that Jesus takes on flesh through us. And this is what makes our faith come alive. And what, what makes Christianity relevant in a world that sees religion and Christianity as irrelevant. And we've talked about it. There's so much going on in the world today. Mass shootings, natural disasters, people not being cared for, that it can almost become hopeless. It can almost seem hopeless. It can be too much to bear. The pain is too great to kind of step into that. And so we'd much rather just divert our attention and divert our eyes to escape into our own little worlds. But Jesus is Lord. And he who died for our sin is calling us to himself. And he's creating this new city. Our hope 
for this new city is that it'll be one of forgiveness and freedom and love and new life. Let's believe that. Let's believe that there is a day coming. Let's believe in this hope. And let us put that faith on display. So as the worship team comes up, I just want to ask, how would you respond to Jesus today? Have your works displayed, has, has, have your works matched your belief? Where do you believe that Jesus is calling you to respond to your works? Where is your faith in Jesus this morning? Do you believe that he's Lord? Do you believe that he rose from the dead? And if so, then that commands a life of obedience, a life of works, because of what he's done for us. Let us believe, and out of our belief, let us display with those works. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a difficult passage like this. I pray that you would seal this in our hearts, not as just a convicting and challenging message, Lord, but as something that will spur us on to good works, to works that comply or works that coincide with our faith. Help us to see that maybe where we are spiritually speaking is because of our lack of obedience, our lack of following you, our lack of works displayed out in faith. Lord, I ask that you would heal us of ways in which that we tend to divert our attention. We become apathetic to things that matter to you in the world and that you would restore us to be able to join you in this wonderful mission that you've called us out to, to become the church in the world and not just gather for church on Sundays. Holy Spirit, would you move in our hearts, help us to believe this, and out of our belief, we would see faith. See our faith by our actions. Lord, I thank you and I ask you this in your name. Amen.